edition of our show, Her Story on the Rocks. Typically, I'm sitting around with Katie and we're having some cocktails talking about famous women in history. But sometimes we like to talk to people who are writing about women in history. And today we have a very special guest with us, Jim Kempton. Hi, welcome to the show. Oh, it's nice to be here. Jim is an award-winning winning author and former editor-in-chief of Surfer Magazine and wrote First We Surf, Then We Eat and Surfing the Manual and today is here to talk with us about a new book or the newest book, Women on Waves, A Cultural History of Surfing, which I'm really excited to jump into and talk about. But first, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? So, gosh... I'm not good at this, but uh, I was the editor and publisher of Surfer Magazine for many years. I worked for two of the largest uh, brands in the surf industry, Quicksilver and then Billabong. Uh, I traveled around the world with both of those brands, uh, one on a, on a sort of search mission uh, surf vessel that uh, traveled around the world looking for, for exploring waves, and then was the director of media at Billabong for about... 12 years. Um, and I also worked at Transworld Publications, which had surf, skate, snow, uh, all of the, all, all of the board sports. Oh, yeah. So I've got a kind of a, a, a long history in this, in this business. And I would say I'm probably the luckiest guy in the world when it comes to uh, having jobs. That's awesome. It sounds like you get to uh, go out and uh, have a lot of fun. That's been the whole, the whole plan and it's worked out pretty well. <laughs> <laughs> that's great um we don't have a lot of great surfing in maryland we do have quite a bit of skateboarding but our waves aren't quite big enough for that well you'd be surprised there's some really there's some really neat uh people in maryland that that surf and even some uh some women surfers that are in the book from maryland so there you go <laughs> yeah, we're gonna have to do a whole special episode on maryland and surfing now <laughs> absolutely so you one of the books you wrote before this is a surfing cookbook that actually has a lot of cocktails in it so is there one that you could think of that would be great to drink while people are reading this new book you know the uh the the one that i think uh immediately sort of comes to mind uh in in this um particular book uh, i mean in this particular uh program would be something like the, the the Paloma, which is a, a a Cuervo or a tequila, they used they they sort of invented it. So I say Cuervo because they're the ones that kind of invented it. But it's with grapefruit juice and Sprite, and it's a really terrific drink. It's very refreshing. Uh, it's a little less sort of sweet and and uh, overpowering like like a margarita can be. You know, margarita is great to have one, but if you're going to have more than one, it's probably better to go with a Paloma. Right. And, uh, uh, and, and you can have a, a you know, a, a, a nice afternoon summer cocktail that will work just as well in winter. <clears throat> I love that. I love that. It's, e it's easy to make too. Uh, I mean, the ingredients are simple, but it, but it, uh, but, but the results are really, really refreshing. Oh, that's great. So hopefully when everybody's sitting around reading, reading this by their nice like winter fireplace, they can have a nice summer cocktail and remember what it was like to be warm. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so I guess before we dive in completely to the book, let's talk about 
like setting the scene. Obviously, it's kind of written as a history of women in surfing in general. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about like the layout and how you chose what to include and what not to include? So that was probably one of the most difficult challenges of the book. Mm. Uh, truthfully, um, what what had happened was is that I am also the president of the California Surf Museum, and about twelve, almost thirteen years ago now. Um, we did uh, an exhibit called Women on Waves, and it was about women surfing. And um, I curated the, the, the exhibit, and I, I, I'm always looking for a, a wider audience for exhibits in the, surfing, in the surfing world because you can't live on just people who come by for surfing. And so I thought a women's exhibit would be really great, would have more interest, and we also did all the women's swimsuits. So I thought that would attract a lot of women who might not be that excited about, you know, necessarily the surfing girls, but they, you know, they're all into fashion and they would enjoy it. And the guys would, you know, would, would find that to be fun as well. So we took about two years to do the, the research on that. And it kind of gave me the, the skeleton, you know, to hang everything on it. It showed us, like, I mean, I knew the history of, of women surfing, but not in such detail and not going back as far and not digging as deep. And so while we didn't really do a super comprehensive exhibit, because as an, as an exhibit, you really can't go too deep um, because, you, you know, you're talking about space as opposed to room in a book. Um, what, what it did do was allow me to sort of feel confident about taking this project on because I'd already done a couple of years with the research and I really kind of knew the, the basics of what I was getting into because what you quickly realize is that when you're writing a history of women surfing, you're writing the history of surfing. Right. So this is, this is a history of surfing just told from one side, like you might tell it from, you know, the world history as seen by the Romans or as seen by the Greeks or as seen by the, the British, you know, it, it, it goes to the very, very beginning of surfing. Um, in fact, the opening chapter is about a woman who uh, uh, was a princess and it's the oldest known surfboard in the world. Uh, it was dates back to 1640 and it belonged to a Hawaiian princess. So those were kind of the things that were kind of exciting uh, to me was that I was going to get to really deal with the breadth and sweep of surfing history. But what was the big challenge? And, you know, you asked about what did you come from with this? Um, I knew that the book would be uh, attractive, but what I didn't to a, to, a, to a large audience, but what I didn't know is, what to put in and what to take out. When you get into history, you have these 40 or so giants, you know, like you do in any, whether that be jazz or, or the Civil War or baseball, all the Ken Burns sort of histories. You've got the giants in it, but after that, it becomes kind of difficult to determine who are you going to put in, who are you going to leave out. And what I kept finding was is that the women who had some of the best stories were not necessarily the ones who were the seven-time world champions. You know, they were the women who may have just contributed one or two things, but they were incredibly significant, or they just had a fabulous story to tell, or they were just such colorful characters. And so after a while, after about a year of, of it, I just realized I'm going to have to put everybody in this, you know? <laughs> um, so there's 780 women in the book. 
That's and, incredible. Um, and, and I really try to leave no one out. Of course, you always do. The moment that you, that you publish, uh, you meet someone that you know should be in there or someone says, well, what about, and you go, oh my God, how could I have forgotten her? But you know, it, it, it still, and, and one of the beautiful things I, I, I should say is that the book sold out before it shipped. So one of the really nice things was that I had a few weeks, actually even more than that, to sort of update. And that allowed me to put a lot of women in. It also allowed me to correct all the mistakes that I had made. Because believe me, there's nothing like 780 people reading your book <laughs> to, to find out what, what isn't exactly right. Yeah. So, um, you know, so it, it, it was really nice. The second edition is going to have even more women in it. It's, you know, it's going to be, you know, all the, the, the minor dates or, or, or uh, um, you know, notes that might be uh, more accurate will be in it. And, uh, and I'm really thrilled that there's such a demand that it, you know, that it sold out and it's, you know, it's first printing. Yeah, I loved that you started um, the book with that really interesting fact about um, the oldest surfboard ever found belonging to a woman because I, a few years back, we did an episode on Agatha Christie. And obviously, you brought this up in your book as well. And one of the things, like, in all of her research is, you know, the first woman to stand up on a surfboard. And I just remember thinking, that can't be right. <laughs> that can't be right. Can you tell us a little bit about that and who actually were the women who were standing up on surfboards before that? So Agatha Christie was very early, and she was probably uh probably very definitely one of the first if not the first woman to stand up on a surfboard from europe right uh only only she and and uh and prince edward um were were in that sort of early 20s time period and she was one of the very first people to surf in south africa where she went uh and and uh, uh but hawaii was really the place where she fell in love with the sport and um, she was a real adventurous. I mean, all those those ideas that she comes up with, I think, were part of just her personality. You know, she was uh, she was really a vivacious, incredibly uh, uh, proactive woman, and in a time when that was not that easy to do, and she was just absolutely um, indefatigable. You know, she would not she would not take no for an answer, and uh, so she had a lot of fun. There's a lot of writing that she did about surfing in her journals and her, her biography. Um, not so much in her, in her stories, of course, because, uh, surfing, surfing doesn't have any murders in it, you know, (laughs) but, um, but, but, but it was a really, uh, a real eye opener. And I think testimony to just, uh, how fun surfing is and how many people, uh, that you would never dream of that actually became surfers. Right. And can we talk a little bit about how um, women and surfing formed like the royal lineages of the Polynesian people? I thought that was really interesting. So I can see you've done your homework. I'm very impressed. (laughs) Um, um, I think uh, um, one of the things that, you know, we have to remember is that the Polynesians were a total seafaring society. Mm. Everything they did was based around the ocean. So they had sailed thousands of miles, um, you know, navigating by the constellations in in um, boats, which were considered primitive at the time, mm-hmm. but now are the state of the art. In other words, the most the most modern state of the art vessels 
that people use now are catamarans. Mm. That's what they use. The, the Spanish galleons, you know, no boats look like that, you know, but but all of the of the really, really great racing boats today, including the ones they're now using, you know, in, in the America's Cup and that are all are all catamaran holes. So these boats had enormous speed and power and stability. And uh, um, so the 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 Hawaiians were really this seafaring nation and they had the, you know it, it was a huge civilization across you know thousands of islands so and, and across you know thousands of miles of, of of ocean and so i think they were just naturally in tune with waves they didn't see waves as being dangerous the way you know seafaring people did in the rocky coasts of of you know europe um they were they were on sandy beaches and they and and they loved this and they, had, they that had been their savior so the waves had carried them a long ways and they were the first people too that i think you know hawaii is so special it, it's a it's an ecosystem that has seven or eight different um stages or layers to it so you can grow everything from apples in the in the high mountains where you have glaciers on the big island you know mm-hmm. on the top of the volcano where you can ski all the way down to sort of the hot, humid jungles of, of the south sides of the islands. So you can grow everything from bananas to apples, and it all grows beautifully. There's, you know, there's no, almost no irrigation necessary. It's all a natural flow. So they had the reason that that was important is that it gave them a lot of leisure time. Mm. They weren't out there with a plow and a horse, you know, struggling to like, you know, scrape enough potatoes together to keep from starving. They were rich and abundant. They had all the sea life. They had all this fish and, 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 and shellfish and, and, you know, pigs and, and, you know, everything they needed was right there. They, they, they really barely had to work. So they had this enormous amount of leisure time. There was never any sort of huddling, you know, in the cold winters, there was, you know, there was never freezing to death or, or being so hot that they were going to you know, croak. There was, you know, there was no desert. It was all just this beautiful, lush, truly paradise. So they had this leisure time and that's what really allowed them to become such great surfers. Mm-hmm. And surfing was such a pleasurable uh, experience. In fact, Captain Cook's uh, uh, ledger, uh, when he first saw surfing, described it was that it, you know, it, it looked like the ultimate pleasure. And and that's what it is, you know, and, and it's that sort of secret that has been spreading all these years when people experience it, they, they understand that. And what was neat about the Polynesians was that the women and the men were very equal in the surf hmm. because surfing has so much sort of dance-like grace to it, which is something women excel in. So even though the men might be big and strong, the women were, you know, were quick and graceful. And so they would actually win contests. And the entire sort of society was built somewhat around surfing as well. They, you know, they had, uh, they had romances and marriages and, and huge gambling uh, fun on it. So, I mean, it was, a, it, it was really an integral part of their society. And it was very integrated between men and women. So all the queens and princesses had their own special beaches that they went to and and, and surfed on. And uh, so it was really uh, uh, a hard thing for them when the missionaries came and told them that being naked and having that much fun was probably not really good for them. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> they were really taken aback. They didn't know what to think. Right. And luckily, I mean, that's another story, but um, one of the one of the women who continued to surf, in fact, really one of the few people who continued to surf was Princess uh, Keolani. 
and she was the daughter of Lilio Kalani, um, who was the queen at the time, and then her her kingdom was usurped by the uh, by by the cabal of of business American businessmen. And it, there's a very good case to be made that if she had not continued to surf, they'd, the missionaries had almost eliminated surfing from the Hawaiians' activities. But she would not could not be taken down because she was you know she was a princess, she was royalty, and mm-hmm. so she continued to surf all the way through, and she died in 1898. And right around that time was when Duke Hanamoku and his brothers and all the beach boys sort of took surfing up again and kind of revived it with all these, uh, the tourists had just begun to arrive in, in the islands. And so they discovered it. And then suddenly there was this huge sort of revival of, of surfing. And, uh, and thankfully it had been carried on uh, by this princess um, who sort of, we think, saved surfing. That's so cool. That's so, so cool. We've, we've done her on our show, um, yeah. like her life story. So she's a really, really interesting person. Oh, she's fascinating. Yeah. Definitely. Um, um, do you think like, how do you feel? Like I noticed in the book, um, it brought up Blue Crush, which I was really excited about because obviously that was a movie that I'm outside of the surfing culture, but everybody's kind of surrounded by it, right? There's movies, right. books, it's in shows. So like growing up, I loved that movie. Um, how do you feel about the way surfing is like portrayed to outsiders? Do you like it? It's really hard to get surfing right. Um, it, it really is. It's one of the most difficult things. In a, and, and, and I have a theory about that. You know, there's there's the Spicolis and the and and the you know big Kahuna's and all sort of sort of stereotypical dodo birds. You know that that surfers are in, inarticulate and that they and 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 my theory is is that you know all energy in the universe moves in waves. So right now, as we're sitting here talking, there are waves going through us: radio waves, heat waves, sound waves, uh, you know, a, a, electric waves light waves, they're all moving in, in energy in the universe, but the only place in that entire universe where human beings actually do experience that, we don't feel any of those waves. But when you stand on a surfboard standing up and you ride that wave of energy, you are literally, not to get cosmic, but you know, you're, you're riding the energy of the universe. And so when surfers come in from a few hours of surfing, oftentimes, I mean, they they can barely speak hmm. and they sound so inarticulate when they try to describe it. But the reality is it's kind of like trying to describe, you know, metaphysics. It's, it's not easy to do. And, and, but they know they've experienced something special. And so I think that's why it's so hard for movies and even books to get it right. Because hmm. it's, it, 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 I don't want to say that it's spiritual, but it's certainly metaphysical in the sense that it's, it's indescribable. It's a, a sort of, you know, ineffable experience that you have with it. Yeah, that's super interesting. I like that a lot. Um, <laughs> thinking about it as part of the universe. That's cool. Um, did you, I really liked the chapter because of course, when I'm flipping through, I'm looking at chapter titles and I'm like, okay, I liked the chapter called Barefoot and Pregnant about women <laughs> surfing and um, children, right? So can you tell us a little bit about the risks that could be used in terms of like leaving your kids to go surfing, being pregnant, being a mom, and how that kind of all plays together? Yeah, so, you know, one of the interesting things, uh, of course, when, when, when surfing was integrated into societies previously, 
um, there was a lot less of that worry because everyone everyone was at the beach, everyone was with the family. Uh, the village was the was was the babysitter. Um, so you never had to worry about someone running off. There were always other people there taking care of the kids. Um, you know, our society is, is has been so uh, systemized and and so uh, siloed. We had these very specific things and very specific times that we had to do things. So that made it more difficult, particularly for women, because women are responsible for a lot of the things that made it difficult for them to be independent. Mm. Children being the you know the largest, but. What happened during the 60s was there was so much that happened between, um, you know, birth control uh, and, and, uh, and, and, women, and women being able to get education and the, the opening up sort of, of, of both the, the economy to women and, and the society being freer. And it came right at the same time that surfing started. The, the I should say the modern era of surfing, the sort of early sixties, late fifties, early sixties. That was when you know the first feminine, you know, feminism books were written. Uh, that it, it, so it it kind of fit into this very uh, the, the baby boomers who also were looking at it and saying we don't want to be like our parents. Right. Um, that was a real huge break. And so, strangely, in the early period of the modern era, women were really kind of relegated to the beach. But as time went on and their freedoms became more and more apparent, they started pushing um, to have that opportunity. And that's one of the really great sort of developments in the book is that surfer, surfing women have always been on the leading edge of that push because they were the ones who were already had already determined, like the men that were with them, that you know the the, the traditional um, social experience wasn't what they wanted that they wanted a lifestyle and that surfing was built around this incredible lifestyle that you could make a living and still do what you loved and and so they were really at the forefront in many in, in most of the eras between the 1950s and today the the, the surfing women have pushed the envelope mm. yeah and while you were writing, did you have like a specific story that you liked to tell the best? I really liked um, the part about Judy Trim. I thought that was a really cool story. Did you have one that you really clung to? There's a couple uh, that I that I really, I mean, there's tons that I really love actually. But I, I, I love I love um, um, the story about uh, when Jericho Poplar and Rel's son confronted uh, the you know the the, the uh, surf professional circuit, um, and and to, to tell that story, and I don't know if I can what kind of language I can use here. So beat me if I if I do. But when I was when, when I was when I was I figured that if you if you have cocktails, that probably people won't mind. But um, but but I was I was interviewing one of the really great uh, women women surfers. She's a seven time world champion, Lane Beachley, and she's from Australia. And I've known her since before she was even a, 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 a great surfer. And uh, so we go back a long way. She, she was the boyfriend of a guy that I always used to stay with in, in Hawaii when I would go over because he was a big, you know, a big wave rider and, and surf sunset. And I always knew he'd never let me drown, <laughs> you know? So, so, you know, both of us were, were happy to be with Ken. And, uh, and so anyway, as I'm interviewing her, she says, she's Australian. So she's like, Jim, what are you going to call the book? And I started telling her, she goes, you know what you ought to call it? I go, no, what? The surf shit, send out the girls. 
So that, that kind of, so I have a section of the book called Send Out the Girls. I ha- I couldn't put the other part in, but, uh, <laughs> but that, you know, uh, was there. And, and uh, um, it sort of sums up a lot about what the women were frustrated about. You know, it was sort of like, yeah, you can surf, but, you know, when, when, when the surf's junk, we'll put you there. And then when the surf gets good, we'll put the men's eats out. Mm. And, and so that was a confrontation it was the very first one where the girl said, no, you know, we want, we want our, we want to be able to surf in front of the cameras and, you know, when the surf is, is best. And that was a, you know, that was one of the first confrontations, but there's a, there's another uh, um, really great story um, about a, um, a serving girl from us, from Australia as well, who was, uh, she came from a really hard scrabble family and she uh, had started on a broken surfboard and she had, she had just, just like scratched her way up through the, through, through the competition. She was just absolutely in love with surfing, but she had this really kind of uh, debilitating arthritis. So she would have to, she would, she, that, that always kind of, to, to use it, kind of crippled her her ability to you know to compete and so she she finally got to the stage where she was in contention for the world title and there was this big contest at sunset beach and she had to place in the contest in order to win the world title and she came down with this absolutely debilitating arthritis attack where she literally had to be pushed around in a wheelchair by her friends and the only way she could practice to get ready for the contest was to lay in a pool where there was no weight and she could then kick her legs and and, and move her arms because she was semi-weightless in, in the pool to do it. And her name is Pauline Mesker and she is just the spunkiest Australian gal. She's a tiny little thing, uh, uh, you know, red hair and freckles and, and uh, absolutely um, um, unstoppable. And she went out at sunset on this big day and she, she struggled and, and, you know, fought through the pain and placed in the contest and won the world title. Wow. And that's one of my favorite, favorite stories, just because it's just, you know, this sort of showing, you know, the grit um, uh, that, that a, a human can have if they want it bad enough. And, you know, they, they wouldn't be, they, they wouldn't not be, uh, you know, stopped. Yes. Did you get to, um, did you get to travel anywhere while you were doing the research or were you drawing on prior experience and things that you already knew from your previous travels? So it was a kind of an interesting situation. I would never ever in the world uh, wish COVID on us again. I hope that it never comes, but one of the unintended results of COVID for me was that I had no excuse for not getting this book done. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, the beaches were closed, the gyms were closed, you couldn't go to restaurants, you couldn't go outside your house, you know, you had to have your food shipped, you know, from the store to deliver. And so I had no excuse to get up in the morning and spend eight hours working, you know, Um, there were no distractions. And, and on top of that, the, the, most difficult women to reach were always the women who were on the world tour already because they're either, Oh, are you getting me just as I'm getting off the plane or I just lost my heat. I'm really in a bad mood or, you know, it's late. I've got to get some sleep because I've got, you know, the contest tomorrow, you know, there's just really difficult to sort of track them down and get them in a place where they can talk. Well, 
you know, during that time, the tour was canceled. So you had all these big stars just sitting around twiddling their thumbs going, sure, I'll take your call. Please, Jim, call me. I'm dying to talk. You know, I need to do something. I'm, I'm totally bored, you know. So it, it actually worked out well for me um, that I was able to do that. I, I wasn't able to travel, but what I was able to do was reach so many people that otherwise, even if I traveled, would have been hard for me to get. Mm. That's really cool. I love hearing stories like that about the pandemic because it was just so tragic in so many ways. And then there's some really good outcomes from it. And one of them is this amazing book. Can you tell our listeners where they can get it and um, like where they can find you to find the rest of your books? Because I'm sure some of them are going to want this cookbook as well. Yeah. Um, well, uh, um, I'm going to start with the top and work down. So um, I, I love them to, if they Google the book and, and, uh, and, and if they Google uh, um, women on waves and then surf shop, there will be ones that come, that will come up. And I would love them to buy it from the surf shops only because those are the people who retail is really struggling and bookstores and, and surf shops deserve our, they are two of the kind of, really community oriented retailers. Um, maybe you don't need to have a, you know, a, a you know, a, a Macy's, but you really need to have your local bookstore. You really need to have your local surf shop. Those are places where the community gathers, where information is shared, where, you know, where, where, where culture is developed. And, and so I, I, I highly, highly hope that that people will go to those bookstores and they're, and they're pretty, they're pretty across the, the country. Um, you can find them, but if not, every uh, every uh, Barnes and Noble um, has them. They're they're featuring them, uh, you know, as a as a book that that that's showing the cover, which is always wonderful, you know, because everyone else has got in the spine, so you always want to have that book like that. Um, and and then you know you you can't always get it on Amazon. Um, Amazon will always have it. So for those people who are living you know, far away from, from, you know, retail spaces and, and who, uh, you know, can't, can't get to that or living overseas. Cause I know a lot of your audience is also, you know, from other places, they can always order it on Amazon. Awesome. Awesome. <clears throat> and then where can they find you like your website, social medias? Yeah, I'm i uh, I'm, I'm at, uh, 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 Jim Kempton surfs and, uh, and I'm also at, uh, uh that that's an instagram and i and i also have one called uh you know women on waves uh so either one of those they can they, they can tap into and and find me and i am uh more than happy to sign books for anyone and uh and, and send them a signed copy as well uh so if they want to order directly from the publisher or if they want to send it to me i will have it shipped to them and, and sign the copies so, uh, you know, I, I, I'm, I'm really big on that. I just feel like books are something that are such a personal thing for people, you know, kind of like your cocktails, they're, they're part, you know, they're, they're, they're your own and, uh, and, and you make them and you, and you buy the ingredients and you, and you enjoy them with, with other things that you do in your life. So, um, so I'm really, I'm, I'm really happy to sell, I mean, to, uh, to sign the books and, and make sure that they're, they're personally, um, get one. Well, that's great. Thank you for joining me here tonight. It's so great to talk to you. And I just love that, you know, this is 780 some odd more women that their stories are being told and they're compiled together. And it's just so important. So you added so much to the literary world of women. And thank you for that. 
Uh, I love it. And you know, that, 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 the, the reaction I see when women see it, and I can just tell they feel like this is their own. They finally have a history of their own. Every woman who's ever served, you know, feels, I think, an affinity for not my work so much as the, as, as the work itself, you know, it belongs to them. And that's really, really satisfying. Yeah, it's wonderful. Well, thank you so much. Um, I can't wait to get this cookbook now and make a whole bunch of cocktails. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I'll, uh, I hope you enjoy it. And thank you so much for having me. It's been wonderful. Oh, it's been a blast. listening to her story on the rocks we are independently produced by 1986 entertainment and proudly recorded in baltimore maryland if there's a woman in history you would like us to cover you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com you can also message us on twitter or instagram we post all of our cocktail recipes on tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us see you next week bye